This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. An Oklahoma judge ruled that Johnson & Johnson deliberately oversold the benefits of opioids while downplaying the risks and ordered it to pay $572 million, Johnson & Johnson appealing that decision. It was the first trial brought by a state against a pharmaceutical company regarding the opioid epidemic and has implications for other similar suits. Purdue Pharma is also facing numerous suits by several states and municipalities and is reportedly preparing to declare bankruptcy if their settlement offer of 10 to $12 billion is rejected. Around 130 people die every day from opioid overdoses, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And some are questioning how the money from these cases will be used to quell the addiction crisis. Joining us to discuss this here in studio right now, Jean-Marie Perrone, who is a professor of emergency medicine and director of medical toxicology at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine. Good to see you. Thank you for coming in. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, the money side of this is obviously one thing, but but we are still very deep into a crisis where so many people are being hurt. And, and I guess the, the financial end does hopefully have a have a positive end on the medical side. But are we getting closer to, to having a handle on this right now? We are making some headway with Narcan distribution or naloxone, which is uh, what we think has maybe tipped the edge towards decreasing death rates in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. But uh, that costs money, that costs time, and that's really just one way of preventing deaths, but it doesn't help us get people into treatment, and that's really another costly endeavor. And then there's housing and uh, picking up the pieces of family and work that fall apart in the addiction cycle. Also joined by Rob Field, professor of law and professor of health management and policy at Drexel University, and as well as a lecturer in the Wharton School's health management department. Rob, great to catch up with you again. Yeah, thanks. So give us your your sense of what we're seeing play out right now with what has come out of the, the ruling in Oklahoma and Purdue Pharma obviously trying to see if it can reach a settlement as well. Yeah, we have a lot of moving parts. It's almost like a Rube Goldberg contraption with all the, the lawsuits and the different parties. Um, there's a lot yet to be determined. The Johnson & Johnson verdict in Oklahoma uh, does uh, – it's not a legal precedent, uh, but it does set a roadmap uh, for other settlements and jury verdicts going forward. Um, it's significant legally because of the use of the concept of nuisance, uh, that the opioid manufacturers and distributors created a public nuisance, which is usually used for someone blaring music in the middle of the night. Um, it's a, a different application about, uh, of that. But we have the um, Localities, the municipalities suing, the state attorney general suing, uh, the consolidated um, uh, litigation in Ohio, uh, the separate suits by uh, almost all the state attorney generals. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of unknowns. So does this, Jim Reed, does this confuse what we would like to see play out on the medical side when you have so many moving pieces uh, involving the lawsuits and, and which level of government is actually going to be able to fund some of these potential uh, potential paths to, to curing all these problems? Well, we definitely know that a limited resource is money. And we know that some of the solutions are effective, such as medications for opioid use disorder, which you know are other drugs that cost money. Naloxone, I already mentioned, getting people into inpatient or outpatient treatment is a 
is a big endeavor. And then, you know, we need money for prevention. We need money for education. We need money to tell the next generation that, you know, opioid prescribing is not the answer to pain. And and part of that, I think one of the social benefits of having these litigations is that there is education that comes out of this. People realize like, wow, if this is a lawsuit because of uh, negligence or false claims or fraud, then, you know, maybe I should be more skeptical if my doctor prescribes me an opioid and, and I don't think I need it. Right. The, the destination of the money is one of the big questions. Uh, one of the disturbing aspects of the Johnson & Johnson verdict and the settlements that came before that is that the state is going to earmark a lot of it for research at the University of Oklahoma. Well, right. research is fine, but there's a more immediate desperate need for treatment. Um, the tobacco settlement is infamous for the way many states have used it, not for tobacco sensation, but for um, closing budget deficits and lowering taxes and things like that. So it's going to be very important to watch where this money is earmarked. But again, again as you kind of alluded to before, Jean Marie, the research part of it is an important part to, to kind of move this forward to try and get to the finish line. It, it, and I guess it's to a degree balancing the the pain and the and the suffering that a lot of people are feeling with that research as well. I mean, pain and suffering, you know, in so many other legal cases is, you know, turns into this, you know, astronomic number. In this case, it really should be an astronomic number because the impact of one person's addiction doesn't just affect that one person. It affects every person around them. And right. so if you want pain and suffering to be a number, I, I mean, it would be incredible. So then the, in, in your opinion, the, the judgment of $572 million by Oklahoma, well under what it probably should well, be. Well under, um, you know, 10 times that seems like uh, the tip of the iceberg of what we should be expecting for this. Um, and of course, you know, nobody wants to see someone settle, uh, a manufacturer settle as a way of, of getting out of this. Right. Um, so, you know, we are concerned about uh, getting them some sort of exemption of fault uh, for future cases. But, you know, in my position, I am a clinician, researcher, and educator. So trying to put all those th three things together, um, we do need the resources for all three of our, you know, our, our mission. I think very importantly, you know, we have built infrastructure where a patient comes into the emergency department, <clears throat> excuse me, who can, um, who is a, a, a good patient uh, in, a, in a good position to get into treatment. We can, you know, write a prescription. We can get them into care on this very same day. Uh, but they may not be able to fill that prescription at a pharmacy because of uh, cost or stigma. And so, you know, we've built so much infrastructure around, you know, reaching patients. And yet, you know, there's other gaps uh, outside of the, uh, of the health system or essentially part of our, our overall health system uh, that continues to fail these patients. So we, we need lots of more resources in uh, research, certainly, uh, but on the clinical side. Rob? Yeah, I, I certainly agree that uh, the Oklahoma judgment should have been uh, many times what it was. We're dealing with two conflicting goals, unfortunately. One is to punish the wrongdoers and have a firm message, a firm deterrent uh, to drug companies, don't do this again. The other is to maximize the amount of money that's available for treatment, research, and, and to help the families. Um, and it may be that we're going to have to trade off one of those goals for the other. Um, it, it, settlements um, do let the wrongdoers off usually, um, but they may result in a larger pot of money. We're joined on the phone by Rob Field of uh, Drexel University and also a lecturer here at the Wharton School, Jean-Marie Perrone of uh, the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, joining us as well. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Rob, from the legal side of this for a second, this 
this battle that is being written about between the federal government and, and the state and local governments over the funding piece of this. You mentioned the, the tobacco settlements. That's really where some of these problems started, correct? Yeah, well, that's kind of the model for where we're going with that. Um, that was at the state level, and it was sort of clear uh, who was asking for the money. Um, right now, we have states on the one hand, and we have the local governments on the other. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not really yet the federal government that's Sorry, directly yeah. involved. Yeah. So the, the local governments were uh, the first uh, in line. Um, they, they started the lawsuits. Uh, the state governments are afraid that they will siphon off the lion's share of the money. Uh, and we're talking about billions and billions of dollars. There's a lot out there, but it's not unlimited. Uh, so uh, the the states are trying to quash uh, some of the local lawsuits and get those incorporated uh, into the state lawsuits. The state of Ohio is being particularly aggressive with that. And uh, time will tell how the judge rules. And, and Oklahoma has received, uh, in, in looking at, at this in a variety of areas, apparently uh, received a lot of criticism for their handling, not only on sending the money to the research side uh, at Oklahoma State University, but on other pieces of this as well. Yeah, um, they did settle the two cases for probably uh, more than they should have, probably a lot more than they should have. Uh, and the, the verdict uh, was was good. Um, but again, as Jean Am was saying, it, it should be uh, many times that. Um, so uh, the, the state has not been uh, as legally adept uh, as they might have been. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Should we f- feel like there is there is a a, a a a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of dealing with all of these, these different problems surrounding opioids right now? Because it, obviously it's massive, what we're looking at right now. But it also feels like this may continue in some form as we move further down the road. I think there's a lot of concern about new drugs coming into the problem. Uh, We have uh, seen a little surge in uh, methamphetamine abuse along with opioids in Philadelphia. But I just want to highlight that, you know, the lethality of opioids supersedes the lethality of tobacco, of any other drug, cocaine, any other drug that we've ever seen. Uh, You know, these people die as an accidental overdose. Uh, We have, you know, middle-aged, slightly overweight men taking prescribed opioids with a glass of wine and, and literally dying in their sleep. So it's not all people using fentanyl on the streets. There's still a a large proportion, about 25 to 30 percent of deaths are coming from prescription opioids being prescribed by doctors uh, to people who are just at risk as their dose gets escalated. So we know that this is going on. We we, that's where prevention and education comes in, you know, backing out of prescribing. Um, But I just want to highlight the fraudulent nature and premise of what started all of this, uh, you know, was really this campaign to doctors. And I just, you know, as a clinician who's practiced for 20 years, I practiced, I learned how to, you know, uh, take care of patients in pain um, in the early 90s without opioids, and they were barely ever used. And I watched this evolution of, you know, they're they're much less addictive, much less than 1%. As long as you're treating pain, uh, you can't get high and you won't get addicted. And, and that premise, which is so well documented in so many forms, 
is is the the foundation of how this exploded into into what it's become. So there's no no question that there was fraud and fraud, you know, in this era, whether it was FDA approved or not, uh, really supersedes any of the other premises, and, and there should be restitution. I was going to say, and, and, and how do you act on that level of fraud when you're talking about it being such a massive element? It's one thing with the fraud uh, of the drug makers for what they were promoting. But isn't there also an element of it within the, the medical community itself of the doctors doing the prescriptions on this? Well, I mean, there were certainly doctors who were being told this fraudulent um, premise from the drug companies and who then, you know, were reinforced in that by getting paid and, you know, gifts and, and other things. Uh, the, the drug companies were very elaborate. They uh, went to the Joint Commission, which is, you know, one of the um, organizations that manages hospitals and told them that we're going to have pain as a vital sign. And if you don't treat pain aggressively, uh, we're going to literally punish clinicians and fine hospitals. So they, they had a multi-pronged effort to to make pain uh, something, to, you know, so, so terrifying that, that we weren't uh, treating it, that, you know, they were able to push levers that change behavior all across the board. Go ahead, Rob. Uh, yeah. Um, it, it, one of the distinctive and insidious features of this is uh, exactly that, the way the medical profession was part of it and the way standard medical practice uh, was integral to the epidemic and um, the, the way that uh, going forward, uh, it, it really indicts uh, the relationship between the pharmaceutical industry and, and prescribing physicians. Can, can you, when you looked at, you said Philadelphia specifically uh, here in our town, is there a difference in terms of the effectiveness of the programs put in place when you're talking about the difference from what can happen here locally in Philadelphia compared to what a state like Pennsylvania may be doing? Well, I think both Philadelphia and Pennsylvania has had outstanding leadership in in creating programs. Um, I, I think across the state, you know, some of the more rural communities uh, maybe have a you know less, literally less people involved um, and and less clinicians who can take this on. Um, but we do have unfortunately the volume in, in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh of, of yeah. patients that allow us to create programs that are being utilized. So how much of it can be a joint effort between the larger cities, the, taking Pennsylvania's example, as you said, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, with the state helping in a lot of those other communities. The, the state has been great. The state offered um, an incentive program to hospitals to build programs, to build pathways specifically through the emergency departments where we could begin to prescribe the very first dose of a opioid stabilizing medication right. uh, to patients who find themselves in the emergency department. And those programs are really taking off. They were offered to every hospital in the state, and uh, about 80 percent or so did sign up for some aspect of it. So, uh, you know, creating ways of, of supporting new infrastructure uh, – for treatment programs is certainly important. Rob? Yeah, um, I, I think we're lucky uh, to live in an area where the state and the city have, have been working together. Uh, we'll see whether that uh, will, paradigm will spread across the country. Um, I think one of the big issues that Philadelphia is trying to lead in is the safe injection sites. And uh, it's, it's not looking good legally for them getting them going, but it's, it's still a possibility. Uh, but Philadelphia has certainly been out front and been an innovator in this area. And, the, and those safe injection sites ha have been quite the controversy here in the city of Philadelphia since that idea was brought up sometime last year, Rob. 
Yeah, yeah. And and they've worked in Canada. They've worked in other places. Um, they make a lot of sense to public health officials. Um, there's a lot of queasiness about the idea of the government uh, allowing people, actually facilitating people, taking dangerous, illegal drugs. Um, but uh, it's kind of hard to believe that someone's going to become a drug addict because there's a safe injection site where you can uh, go and, and, and take your drugs. Um, and it, it definitely uh, helps the OD problem because there's someone there to help uh, if there is an overdose. Yeah. So uh, supervised consumption has an evidence basis that's tremendous, both as a cost effective strategy, a public health strategy, and one that does not lead to increased drug use and does certainly connect people to treatment. Uh, Right now we have, you know, again, the emergency departments as a 24-7 place where patients can go, but we don't have places where uh, patients can use uh, drugs safely in a a supervised setting. And and that is something that that would offer. It's not going to create new people who are using drugs, but it will create connections to care that we don't have right now. And for people that, that are maybe hearing that for the first time, the safe injection site, how would that process work for the individual going to it? So it's a supervised consumption, meaning that they would uh, check in um, uh, anonymously and uh, be given uh, syringes, uh, clean syringes and uh, clean accessories to use. They would not be provided with drugs and they would be uh, put in a, you know, a place, a cubicle where they can uh, safely administer drugs and then uh, be supervised for a brief period and then uh, put into or or moved to a lounge area uh, where there would be um, uh, some sort of clinical presence, a, a nurse most likely um, uh, available with naloxone and, and oxygen if there were to be an overdose. In all of the supervised consumption facilities across the world, there has never been a fatal overdose. So there's really a testimony. When we're losing three people a day in Philadelphia, yeah. uh, you know, if that three persons uh, are someone you know, it really makes a difference if we can mitigate that. But then the goal would be at that particular site is that even though the person may be taking drugs, that to have that connection with a medical professional that maybe can get them started on the path to not using as much. Absolutely. So we would have peer counselors who are already in recovery. We would have people who... Um, uh, can do screening for HIV and hepatitis C. We can do education about safe injection practices. Right. And we form alliances with people. We become uh, you know, colleagues and peers, and we allow them to share their concerns, their anxiety about withdrawal, their anxiety about treatment, and, uh, and help them bridge that gap through people who have already been in recovery. Rob, how have they worked in Canada in your mind? Uh, the evidence, uh, as Jean Marie was saying, is, is pretty good. Um, they have reduced uh, overdose deaths um, either to zero or, or close to zero, and they do create a bond with the healthcare community that can um, get people into treatment. Uh, they're certainly a lot better than the restrooms in a public library, hmm. and the people are better trained than the librarians. But I, I think you you mentioned the 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 need for more information being put out and more of an understanding being put out, especially around opioids. And, and when you look at the the overall operation, Jimmy, how important is that information and that piece to it as we move forward because of how, how many people have been impacted by this? 
I mean, I, there's not a time that, you know, I, I show up somewhere to give a talk where, you know, somebody doesn't raise their hand and say, my neighbor, my son, my, you know, my brother, my sibling. I mean, they're tremendous. Everybody knows one person, one degree of separation to somebody who's truly suffering. Um, and that's just the prevalence of the disease at this point. It has exploded. And, mm-hmm. you know, deaths are just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, if we have 70,000 deaths, we have, you know, 500,000 people who are actively uh, suffering and then literally 2 million people who we believe are, are using. So there's just large numbers of people who are not getting access to care. Rob, uh, go ahead, Rob. Uh, another point of uh, optimism in Philadelphia's proactive posture uh, is that if it does get some money from one of these settlements, uh, it's more likely to use it for treatment and prevention uh, than for a tax cut or something like that. There still is a lot of question, Rob, uh, especially around Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family right. uh, and, and their role in this. And, and whether or not, and, and I think in many cases, because of how insidious this problem has become, people to a degree want their pound of flesh. And, and, they, and they, want, they want the Sackler family to actually be held accountable and not be able to just pay off 10 to $12 billion, which still would allow them a very luxury, luxurious lifestyle. Yeah, they would still have tens of billions of dollars left over. Um, the Sacklers have proposed a settlement where they would turn their company into a new, uh, I believe, nonprofit uh, that would uh, produce Narcan and, and other um, anti-overdose drugs. Um, but they would still be able to keep a lot of their money, the lion's share of their money, a lot of which is uh, parked overseas. And that's not very satisfying, uh, partly because we do want our pound of flesh for, for what they've done, and partly as a deterrent uh, for future families of future companies uh, that are going to try something similar. Jean-Marie? Well, I, I definitely agree. Uh, you know, I, I think Purdue is, is, has the, from what I've read, most of the, of the data of the origins of, of this problem with OxyContin. But there are certainly lots of other people and lots of other organizations accountable. There are the distributors. There are the drugstores. I mean, there were so many uh, people complicit in this, in this pathway, and, and everybody was making money along the way. And nobody stopped to ask, you know, this doesn't make sense. You know, how can we be, you know, getting... Uh, you know, 500 doses of, of an opioid in, in, in a town of, you know, a thousand people. I mean, there's, yeah. you know, there's been many times where people are, are, you know, in retrospect questioning what was happening. I think one of the dangers of consolidating all of these suits is that some of the more aggressive states like Massachusetts might no longer be able to pursue uh, their more draconian penalties. Um, and uh, that would be a loss. 844-WARDEN is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, you can send comments on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So, Rob, where do we stand in Ohio right now? Well, there's a trial scheduled for October. Um, the judge is trying as hard as he can to get um, a settlement worked out before then. Uh, but given all the moving parts and the states versus the localities, uh, it's not clear whether that could happen. Uh, but the Johnson & Johnson verdict uh, has put some wind into the sails of people looking for a settlement. Uh, they now have a benchmark uh, to go after. Uh, so my own guess is it's probably 50-50 uh, as to whether they'll reach something. Is there something significantly different between Oklahoma and, and Ohio in terms of the cases being brought forward? 
Um, in Ohio, you have a lot more plaintiffs. Sure. Uh, in yeah. Oklahoma, it was basically just the state. Um, and uh, I believe there are more defendants as well, although Purdue is the main one. Uh, so it's much more complex. Great to have you both with us. Thank you very much, Jean Marie, for coming in. Greatly appreciate it. Rob, thank you very much for your time, as My always. Pleasure. Thank you. Jean Marie Perot from here at the University of Pennsylvania and the Perelman School of Medicine, Rob Field at Drexel University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.